Thanks, Jared. Good morning. Grab your Bibles, open them up. Acts chapter 23. There's been riots in the temple. Paul, at one time, was a Jew's Jew. I mean, he loved the law, he loved the Lord, and the best way he knew how was serving the Lord through trying to obey the law and trying to follow all the rules and regulations of the Jewish religion. And at one time, he was the, he was the kind of the poster child of, of zeal for the Lord and for the temple and all that there was. And then he met Jesus. <laughs> and he realized that Jesus was the fulfillment of all that he was striving and trying to do and to be. And Jesus just absolutely turned his life right side up. And for 20 years, he's been looking forward to coming back to Jerusalem. And he just, he's just imagining if they, if they can just see where I've been and what Jesus has done for me, it's going to change their lives. And he's so excited to be there. And so he's in the temple in chapter 21, we saw him go into the temple and he's trying to um, just let them know that I love you guys. I care about you. I'm here for you. And James and the other Christian leaders said, well, if you do this and you fulfill the vow, they'll see that, that you're still a Jew's Jew. And, and, and you'll build a bridge to them. And so he did. And what happened? A riot. So much so that the captain of the guard, the Roman uh, commander, had to rescue him out of the temple because they were going to kill him. And he's coming out of the temple. He gets to the fortress. He says, let me speak to them. They just don't understand why I'm here and how much Jesus, their Messiah, has done for them. They'll get it if they'll just listen to me. So he speaks in Hebrew and he shares his testimony and this is chapter 22, and they're listening, and, and he tells them about how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and how Jesus is alive, he's risen from the grave, and, and that Jesus sent him to the, the G word, Gentiles. And when he said the word Gentiles, the crowd just went crazy again, and riot number two takes place. And the commander goes, what on earth is happening with this guy? Why, why are they going crazy? Why are they wanting to kill him? And so he says, we're going to find out. We're going to call a meeting of the council. And we'll figure out what's going on. Which brings us to chapter 23. So here we go. And Paul's at the council. And he's looking at... In, in, earnestly at the council, verse 1, and he's saying, men and brethren, and he starts off, he's trying to let them know that in truth I am a Jew's Jew. I love the law. I love the temple. I love everything about our Jewish religion. And he's going to take them from there to Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He's our Sabbath rest. 
He's our sacrifice for sin. He's everything. And so he starts out and he's trying to tell them, I'm one of you. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Look at your notes, number one. Remember, they were falsely accusing Paul of teaching Jews to forsake Moses and the law. Paul never taught Jews that. He taught Gentiles that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, so they didn't need to try to obey the law. They were fulfilled in Jesus, but he never taught Jews that. Paul says that's fake news. And the truth about Paul is, if we look at Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, it's the New Living Translation. This was Paul. I was circumcised when I was eight years old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Paul was a Jew's Jew, but he fell in love with Jesus. And he's trying to get them to understand about Jesus and who he was and that he fulfilled every prophecy in the Old Testament. It's interesting, the only indication Paul ever gave of not living up completely to the law was in Romans chapter 7, 7 verse 7, when he said, I violated the commandment not to covet. Well, what was he coveting? What was he desiring? Well, he was honest about that and he shared with us Well, it was the prestige and the power of being a Jew's Jew, of working to be number one. I was the most zealous of anyone. I was up and coming and I was going to be a Jew's Jew and a leader of leaders. And that was my passion until I met Jesus. And when I met Jesus, I gave all of that up. And Jesus became my passion. And I believe that what was happening to the religious leaders, what was happening to Ananias, the high priest, that was their passion. They wanted the power and the prestige and the money. And Paul, when he started talking about Jesus, it caused Jews to to let go of the law to save them and to start hanging on to Jesus and trusting Him more than listening to these religious leaders. And they didn't like that at all. Paul's focus on Jesus was a major challenge to their religious system. They were losing control over the people. And so Ananias the high priest, he reacts violently. Look at verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Ananias was one of the worst priests that Israel 
ever had. He worked out a deal with the other priests, probably pay back under the table, whatever it was, that animals brought to the temple for sacrifice. Make sure you look them over really careful. Find a blemish. And then offer them another animal. Can't use this one, the priest would say. Why? It's blemished. See that spot? See that little mole? See whatever it might be? But we just happen to have some sheep handy for you. Oh, really? Yeah, this is your lucky day. We're here for you. Now these sheep, they're a little bit pricey. But we'll take your other one as a trade-in. But these sheep have already been inspected and blessed. You can trust us. (laughs) Remember Jesus twice cleansed the temple of this hypocrisy? The high priest thought that he had cleansed Israel of Jesus. But no, he's alive. And he's back. And Paul's sharing about this Jesus. And these next words should sound really familiar to these guys. So look at verse 3 as we get started with that. Then Paul said to them, God will strike you. He's speaking to the high priest. You whitewashed wall. We'll stop there for a second. Let's think about how Jesus had to speak to the high priest and the other priests as he was dealing with them. And they were closing their hearts to him. Jesus' words, Matthew 23 Two verses, 27 and 33. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you like whitewashed tombs that indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? So Paul continues, and he's talking to the high priest, and he says, So, There you are sitting in judgment over me, verse 3 as we continue, according to the law. And do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by him said, Whoa, whoa, whoa. Paul, you revile God's high priest. And then Paul said, Well, I did not know, brethren, that he was a high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, remember, Paul has waited 20 years to come and share Jesus with them. And things just are not going like he thought they would. And now he's called the high priest a hypocrite, Publicly, is that a way to introduce an evangelistic sermon? (laughs) I don't think so. Paul might have lost his cool a bit. So I think he apologizes, sort of. His apology? Well, I think it might have a little bit of sarcasm in it. An underlying message. What he's really saying is this, I think. Ananias... I've been watching and your blatant sinful lifestyle, well, it makes it impossible for me or for anybody else to recognize you as God's high priest. Now, Ananias was wicked, but he wasn't stupid. 
he got the point. And I think Paul realized he had. So Paul's scrambling right now. He needs to get the focus back on Jesus. The resurrection, Jesus is alive. I met him on the road to Damascus. I want you to meet him. He's got an ingenious way of doing that. So look, look at verse 6 with me. And when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead. And that's why I'm being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. And the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. And of course, that's why they're sad, you see. And the Pharisees, well, they believe in angels and spirits. And they believe in the Bible, basically. And that's what Paul was getting at. The Pharisees believe, the Sadducees don't. They don't believe in angel or spirit. The Pharisees confess both. On your notes, number two, Paul cries, the resurrection is the reason for all of this turmoil and everything that's surrounding me. This Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified, why he's living proof that the Bible is just exactly what it says as you read the word. There's miracles when you turn to the Lord. And Jesus is living proof of this resurrection. He's alive. I met him on the road to Damascus. He's already shared the testimony with these guys. And now he's trying to share the testimony with the council. Well, verse 9. It's just not going to work out like Paul hopes. There arose a loud outcry. And the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and started protesting. We find no evil in this man. If a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, well, they're not quite ready to say that it was Jesus who spoke to him. But they're recognizing that Paul is standing for what we stand for, the truth of God's word. And so they're getting behind him. And it's interesting as you finish verse 9, there's that phrase, let us not fight against God. This might be Paul's mentor, the one who, as Paul grew up and learned the scriptures, he was mentored by Gamaliel, one of the most highly respected teachers of Paul's day. If you look at Acts chapter 5 with me, verse 34 through 39, there was another time when Gamaliel stood up. And this at that time it was for the apostles. And one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. If it is if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. 
But if it is God, you can't overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. I'm wondering when I hear this, if Gamaliel hasn't really been paying attention. And now here's Paul, and he's listened to Paul's testimony. And he knows Paul intimately. He was his mentor. And I'm wondering if maybe Jesus isn't starting to get through to his heart. Well, eternity will have that answer. Don't fight against God. You're not going to win. Look at verse 10 as we move forward. And when there arose a great dissension, that means another riot, the commander, fearing lest Paul should be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them, bring him back into the barracks. This is riot number three. Third time Paul needs rescuing. So here he is back in the barracks. He's under captivity uh, from the Roman guard. He's their prisoner at this time. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And verse 11, as we get started with that, nighttime arrives, but the following night, stop. Think about where Paul is, most likely. He's been reflecting on these events. He's been hoping for 20 years to get back and share with his own brethren. He would give his life for them if he could. There's nothing he cares more for than his Jewish brethren. And he went into the temple and he tried to encourage them and show them that he's, he's still a lover of their religion and that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of their religion. They become a fulfilled Jew in Jesus. And what happens? Riot number one breaks out. He shared his testimony on the steps of the fortress. And he shared. And riot number two breaks out. And then he came to the Sanhedrin. And all he did was create riot number three. And he's just feeling like, I'm a miserable failure. Everything I've tried to do to reach my people. It's, I can't they won't even listen to me. And on top of everything else, here I am in chains, in jail. And my friends and Agabus the prophet, and they all said, the last thing you need to do, Paul, is go to Jerusalem. Don't go. It's not going to work out like you think it is. And in his stubbornness, he says, no, I don't care if I, have to, if I have to go to Jerusalem and if I die for Jesus, that's okay. But here he is sitting in the dark. What was I thinking? All, all alone, his hands holding his head, maybe the tears flowing, bound in chains, his darkest hour. Here's the Lord. Look at verse 11 again. In the night, the following night, the Lord stood by him. Don't you love that? He knows what we're going through. And he's always there for us. 
no matter what we may be wrestling with. The Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Whoa, look at your notes, number three. So here's Paul's darkest hour. That's precisely when the Lord came to him personally, saying, be of good cheer, Paul. You're doing more than you think. In other words, good job. Good job. You're right on course. Rome is just ahead. And Paul will touch lives in the emperor's court that in no other possible way could he have gotten inside of the emperor's court to touch lives personally than the way that it's ended up with this happening, what Paul is going through right now. See, Jesus had an ingenious plan for Paul. Now, you can bet that Satan doesn't want any of this to take place. He wants to make sure this never happens. Verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now there were more than 40 who formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders, verse 14, and, and they said, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will not eat anything until we've killed Paul. We're going to rid the Jewish nation of this scourge, this Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander, you're going to be there to help him understand what's going on, that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you're going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we're ready to kill him before he gets near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Forty men take an oath. They swear not to eat or drink. Their plan, we're going to ambush Paul on the way before he even gets close. However, it just so happened that Paul's nephew somehow heard the entire conversation amazing how the Lord schedules his divine appointments, isn't it? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Verse 18. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He sent something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, went aside, probably sat down with him and asked him, What's going on, young man? What is it that you have to tell me? Verse 20, and he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. 21, but do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him 
men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for you to promise that you're going to bring him. There was neither, think about this, it was not a coincidence, it was not good luck, it was not just an accident that Paul's nephew happened to be in earshot of this plan. This was part of God's working and plan. This was a supernatural, natural event in Paul's life, divinely orchestrated. So this begs a question for me, your notes number four. Was Paul in or out of God's will by stubbornly heading to Jerusalem going against the godly wisdom of those who loved him the most. What do you think? You want to know the answer? I don't have a clue. I honestly don't know. Some years ago, 25 or so, I met Neil and Renee Barnwell. And it was part of the Lord raising up and planting this church that we're part of today. And Neil and Renee were part of Calvary Chapel. And Neil began to share with me about Calvary Chapel. And we went with Neil and Renee and those elders that were the first elders of this church family, and we went to Pastors Leaders Conference in Tahoe. I know it's a rough thing to have to do, but we went to the Leaders Conference in Tahoe, and I just fell in love with Calvary Chapel. And deep down in my soul and my heart, I go, I had no idea that there was this kind of group that just loved your word. And they were so open to the work and the power of your Holy Spirit. And they're so focused on Jesus. Wow. And I just felt at home. And it wasn't long after that that we became part of the Calvary Chapel family. Here's the interesting thing. As a young man, as I was going to Biola, I was a youth pastor in Huntington Beach at another group that I love very much, the Evangelical Free in Huntington Beach. But I was struggling with the organized church at that time, and I was beginning to get a lousy attitude. I know, I know, hard to believe, huh? But I was. And there were some college guys that came up to me What I didn't realize is that this was the beginning, 1968-1969, of the youth movement of the Jesus people. And it was all taking place at Calvary Chapel. And there were literally thousands of young people coming to know Christ. And these college guys came to me. And they they go, Lee, you can't believe how awesome it is on Friday nights. And they have these concerts and love songs and all this stuff going on. you got to come with us and see what's going on. 
No, I'm busy. And it took 27 years from that point to finally make it, to finding out what Calvary Chapel was all about, and that deep down in my heart of hearts, that's what I had been looking for all my life. So, was Lee Talley in or out of God's will by stubbornly dismissing and ignoring these college guys from the free church? Did God have a divine appointment and I just wasn't going to follow through? Honestly, I don't know. Yeah, but you had a really lousy attitude. Yeah. But I don't know if I missed out on God's perfect will or not. Well, what do you mean? Well, I am absolutely absolutely certain that if I would have gone with those guys, I would have fallen in love with Calvary Chapel and what they stood for at that point, and I would have been right in the middle of everything that was going on with all the Jesus people. And I probably would have never made it to Willows in 1978, which those four years ministering to young people in this community with Coach Moore was some of the most wonderful times that I've ever experienced. And then, on top of that, the Lord brought us back. And we probably wouldn't be here today. So I don't know. But what I've come to believe with the years of walking with the Lord, I believe God loves us so much and He won't let us for forfeit His blessings just because Maybe we've got a bad attitude or we miss a clue or there's a little play in the steering wheel that he's trying to move in our lives. I believe God is so huge and so incredible that he can accommodate his children's weaknesses and even his stubborn children. Number five, here's my point. Did Paul do everything right? I don't think he did. But in the end, God got him where he wanted him to go and God fulfilled his will for Paul. There's an interesting verse that David shares. David had a heart after God, but he by no means was a perfect man living up to what he should be living up to, but This is what David expressed and experienced. He loved the Lord with all his heart. He was not perfect. Psalms 18.36 He says of the Lord, You enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. I think he was saying as long as his heart was right and he was open to the Lord, God made sure his feet stayed on the path somehow. And when he slipped, God enlarged the path, kept the path underneath him. And even if we step out and we veer to the right or to the left, God doesn't abandon his kids. He's always right there, whether we realize it or not. God stretches out the white lines beneath us to ultimately keep us in his will. And he enlarges the lane to keep us moving in the right direction. 
we're called to a high calling to become like Jesus. And our God is not going to give up on us. Isn't that incredible? Here God may be, maybe have widened Paul's path to accommodate his stubbornness and zeal. And so I've come to this in your notes number six. Whatever question you might face, whatever challenge you might be going through, however you're wondering, am I in God's will or what is His perfect will? Here's what I think we need to do always. Make sure your heart is open to the Lord. And He'll have a nephew, right, in the right place at the right time. The world may call it, oh, luck or coincidence or odd twist of faith. No, it's God supernaturally, naturally working in your life on your behalf, just like he did for Paul. So this has become a life verse for me and others. I know have told me this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. I like the NIV. He'll make your path straight. He'll change that path beneath your feet. And the message, he's the one who will keep you on track. Amen? Amen. So we go on. The commander, verse 22. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, don't tell anyone you've revealed these things to me. And then he called, verse 23, for two centurions saying, and start adding this up. And we're talking about the finest, the finest fighting machine and army in the then known world, the Romans. Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, about midnight, and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Imagine the reaction of these 40 guys who've taken an oath to kill Paul. I think I can hear their stomachs starting to growl. What are they going to do now? And then he writes this letter, verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius uh, Lysias, to the most excellent Governor Felix, greetings and so forth and so on. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, coming with troops, and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman, he kind of left out, I, I was going to flog him to find out. No, I learned he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law. It was just a religious thing. It had nothing to do with Roman law. Nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Isn't it interesting that he, the commander, is standing up for Paul. Verse 30, And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him directly to you. 
and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell, and so forth. I'm sending Paul to you, Governor Felix. You're the governor. Let his accusers come to you. Bottom line, now Paul's your problem. (laughs) So, here he is. And here's a map of his journey, if you're looking at that. And the soldiers, as they were commanded, they took Paul and they brought him by night to Antipatris. And what you see there is you get through the mountains and all the really dangerous areas where there could be, uh, where they could hide and they could come out and they could attack. And they get to the open valley. And once they get there, the next day, they left the 70 horsemen to go on with him and the 400 others returned to the barracks. Verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and had delivered the governor, the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Here he is. He's in your hands now. Verse 34, and when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from uh, Cilicia, he says, I'll hear you when your accusers also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Okay. Whoa, that sounds like not a very good place to be held. Well, actually, the praetorium, it was neither a dungeon nor a prison. It was Herod's palace, his headquarters, on the Mediterranean Sea. So thus we'll see in chapter 24, Paul's going to be held here for two years in protective custody on the beach. Sometimes the Lord right in the middle of things always has a little something that we go, wow, this is kind of neat. And Paul's given quite a bit of freedom. But his accusers, they waste no time. After five days, Ananias the high priest, and they bring a lawyer with him this time. But here's what I love the most. Worship team, come on up. We'll close. Paul's now 65 miles from Jerusalem and by God's supernatural, natural means, he might be the only place on earth at this time where these 40 hungry assassins can't get to him. Don't you love the way the Lord works? Will they try? Well, you'll have to wait till next Sunday to find out. Lord, we thank you. Just for the lessons as we learn about Paul and we learn about your love for him and how you stood by him. And though maybe he didn't do everything just the way he should have, Lord, you never left him or forsook him. And how you love us, just like we are. In fact, while we were your enemies, well, while we were sinners, you, that's when you died for us. And now that we belong to you, oh, how much more you love us, even through our struggles and our stumbling and our, and our attitudes. And Lord, you'll never leave us. You are such an awesome God, Jesus. How we love you.
How we thank you for your word that just rings so true. And we see your love for Paul and all that you're doing in a supernatural, natural way in his life. And Lord, you love us just the same. And you're working in our lives. And how I personally thank you for how you have brought me through to this day. I just love you so much and appreciate you so much. Thank you for this precious church family. Lord, help us just love you more and more as we get to know you in the days ahead. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship him as we close. Great job, huh? Amen. So if while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he loved us that much. It goes on to say, how much more does the Lord love his kids? If you've invited Jesus into your heart, if you haven't, why not? What are you waiting for? If you've invited Jesus into your heart, you've asked him to be your Lord and your Savior, you are so precious in his sight. How much more does he love us? May the Lord just richly bless you this day, this week. Always remember, even if your steering wheel is a little wobbly, the Lord's not going to give up. He's going to keep working. He's going to get you where you need to go. Isn't he something? Amen. God bless. Have a great day. Say hi to somebody on the way out.